It's a moment that's forever etched in my mind. I had gone to work early when a friend of mine called, where are you? His voice sounded so serious. He said, get to the TV, turn the news on. As I did so, I could hardly believe my eyes as I saw images of Twin Towers of New York bursting into flame. Newscasters trying to picture together the story. I had gone to work early to get some necessary work done so that afterwards I could rush to the airport to see my daughter off to France. That would all change now. There are these moments in our lives that you always remember. They are of such impact. You remember where you were, what happened, and how life changed after that. For many of us, September 11th, 2001 is just like that. The whole world break to a halt in light of the terrorism that took place on that day. I remember the, the gamut of emotions from surprise, suspicion, fear, anger. Even if you were five years old at the time, shout out to Wes and Nathan, some of our pastors, you will know about 9-11. COVID, it's been a prolonged event. And for those of us that are walking through this experience, we will never forget it. And likely in its wake, how we do life is forever changed. These are watershed moments. And today we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. I invite you to join me in chapter 9 for a story of Jesus that is one of those watershed moments. Luke would so want us to grasp the significance of the events that he is sequencing for us. To do that, let's try to step into the disciples' shoes. And no matter how many times you've heard this story, let's hear it as if the circumstances are hitting us for the very first time. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Now imagine, you're one of the 12 disciples he has chosen to follow closely with him. So you're intently watching what Jesus is doing. You're there when he's ministering. You can't deny the fact that he's done many miracles. One or two miracles would be mind-boggling, but you've seen Jesus heal everybody that comes to him. You've seen lineups. You've seen whole villages bring their sick and afflicted to receive from Jesus. He has rightly deserved your awe and wonder. And though you don't completely understand him, you are so glad that you chose to follow him. And there's this other side to Jesus too, his practice of prayer. It was consistent often and real. You were so drawn in to hear him. And on this day, as Jesus is praying alone, you are close by when he turns to you and the disciples and asks you a question. Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answer, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? It's one thing to answer what others might be thinking. It's another thing to express what you are thinking when Jesus asks this questions. I mean, you know what it's like when you're in a classroom and the teacher who knows the answer asks a question. You don't want to answer with the wrong answer and be embarrassed in front of the others. Especially now in this moment, with the question Jesus asks, your answer in your head is almost inconceivable. Would you have answered it? Peter does. And Peter answered, the Christ of God and he, Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. I don't think you can overstate the significance of this moment. 
Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is the Greek word anointed. And in the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament in the Hebrew language to Greek, the word anointed was the word used to identify the Messiah, the King, the Savior. We all live in, in a hope that especially when we go through difficulties, we're going to have something or someone that is gonna make life better for us. For the unemployed, it's the job. For the sick, it's the cure. For the single, it's that right person. And for the Jew, it's the hope prophesied, spoken about in the Old Testament. The one who is coming, the Messiah, the King, the Savior, who will make all things right, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. And as a disciple, you are there and you are witnessing Jesus making things right. The lame walk, the blind see. You pinch yourself. You can't believe it as it dawns on you more and more. This is the Christ of God. It's earth-shaking. And the story continues to be that way. There's more hard-to-believe material as the story goes on. We have expectations. And we, we live thinking and picturing what life should and could be like but we often can't orchestrate things according to our plans. You thought going into business would be like this, but it's turned out differently. You thought marriage would be like this, and not that it's bad, but it's quite different from the per per perfect picture you had once painted. You've imaged Jesus to be this way, but he's broken all your categories. And for the, for the Jews, the disciples, for Peter, the expectation that the Messiah would come and make things right, he will, won't he? But Jesus says this, For the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is so hard to grasp. Remember the Jewish liturgy around the Messiah is that he'll make all things right. He'll bring salvation. Enemies will be defeated. The mighty will be cast down from their thrones. Luke has so much as put those words on the lips of Zechariah the priest and the mother of Jesus, Mary. Being raised on the third day doesn't even register because there's no, there's no way to connect suffering and rejection with the Messiah. It's a mental barrier so that nothing else can be received. And as it is for the teacher, so it will be for those who follow him. This is also a shaking. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And this is a hard saying, and maybe you've heard it before, but have you let it really hit you? Take up your cross daily? I mean, is that even healthy? Our culture is not about self-denial. Our culture is about what you deserve, what you can accumulate, how comfortable you can make yourself, what sort of satisfaction you can rack up. And yet Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is such a deconstruction, Jesus' way. This is hard. The cross is a, is a Roman instrument of torture, not a trinket that hangs from a golden chain, meaning it is a daily decision to deliberately say no to those places of my desires that are out of whack with God, whether it's sexually, financially, relationally, in order to say yes to the harder, more difficult way of Jesus. Roger Herr in his book, Live Not By Lies says, he, Jesus, does not want admirers, he wants followers. 
As Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, God suffered with humanity to redeem humanity. He calls us to share in his passion for our sake and the sake of the world. He promises us nothing but the cross, not happiness, but the joy of blessedness, not material wealth, but richness of spirit, not sexual freedom as erotic abandon, but sexual freedom within loving, mutually sacrificial commitment, not power, but love, not self-sovereignty, but obedience. Jesus really wants us to trust him here. It seems so counterintuitive to lay your life down. Study the lives of the indulgent and filthy rich. That's always somebody that has more than you. But getting beyond personal basic needs, there's not a, there's not a greater satisfaction or vitality of life when we have more. We chase those things only to find out that we don't get them. So Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus is telling us the counterintuitive of laying down our lives actually leads to life. Will you trust him in that? He wants us to do that. What are those places where Jesus is asking you to say no to something in order that you can say yes to him? He further wants to encourage his, his disciples to see the big picture in light of his big ask for our self-denial and taking up our cross. So he points us to the future. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Why would we ever be ashamed of Jesus and his words? Well, in many contexts in the world, both then and now, one of the hard decisions that followers of Jesus make is to declare their allegiance to Jesus and his words in the face of hostility. In many places today, proclaiming faith in Jesus immediately puts yourself in harm's way. The organization Open Door, which tracks the persecuted church, states that in the year 2020, there were 260 million followers of Jesus who were in the categories of high, very high, or extreme risk of persecution. So if it meant physical harm, would you declare your allegiance to Jesus? What about ridicule? For example, I think the sexual ethics of Jesus are pretty clear, but they're not very popular today. I'm not talking about being unloving, insensitive, or judgmental. But if you were to enter into conversation, do you shrink back from the perspective of Jesus when it comes to what is sexually appropriate or inappropriate, gender identity, what marriage is all about? Are we ashamed of Jesus' words here? My suspicion is that the cultural intimidation is only going to get stronger. So if speaking the truth in love means being canceled in some of your circles, will you embrace the cross? If saying yes to Jesus means ridicule amongst your friends or family, who will you choose to stand with? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus really wants us to trust him here. Yes, laying down our life is counterintuitive. Taking up our cross is difficult. Standing with him and his words in the face of hostility, not easy. And so he points us not just to this life, but to what is to come that he, the king, is coming again. 
See, when, verse, when Jesus first came, he came to save. We were separated from God. We had no way to bridge the gap between us and God. So Jesus came to take care of that. And he did so not by inflicting death on others, but by dying himself. As he said, he must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. But in so doing, he would be raised from the dead, securing a victory, the victory that we needed, which restored a right relationship with God through what happened through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, leading to this, the coming kingdom in its fullness, when Jesus comes again. In Luke's sequel in Acts chapter 1, Luke records there the words of the angel as he speaks to the disciples after they have seen Jesus ascend from the earth. He writes, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The words of Revelation echo the same thing. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Jesus is coming again. The king is coming. In light of that, in that context, yes, deny yourself. Take up the cross daily and follow him because the fullness of his kingdom is yet to come. Jesus tells his disciples they are going to get a glimpse of that. He says to them, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, which leads to Luke's next sequence of watershed moments. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Here it is again. Jesus and the practice of prayer. It is interesting that the Gospel of Luke, more than any other Gospel, shows to us the humanity of Jesus and at the same time shows us that Jesus is most often praying. I think there's a message for us in that. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more so do we in our humanity? Through prayer, we position ourselves to see God, hear God, we, we position ourselves to have God strengthen us, move in us. We position ourselves to partner with God. God is always inviting us into more in the area of prayer. Perhaps in Central Heights, you have participated in our recent 21 days of prayer. Don't let that be an end in itself, but rather a springboard that launches in you into a rhythm of prayer, deeper prayer in your life. Now imagine you're one of the disciples that Jesus has invited with him to go up into the mountain we aren't told which mountain because that doesn't really matter. What matters is what happens on that mountain. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. In the Old Testament, the story of Moses going up on the mountain, spending time in the presence of God. When he comes down from the mountain, his face shone because it reflected the glory of God. But it's different with Jesus. Jesus is not reflecting a glory. The glory comes from within. See, Jesus took on our humanity. He fully took on our humanity so that his humanity veiled his glory. The Old Testament that Moses built gives us a picture of that. The Old Testament had a central structure called the Tent of Meeting. In it was a room called the Holy Place and another room called the Holy of Holies, in which dwelt what the Jews described, the Shekinah, the indescribable 
glory of God. It was a fearful place. Covering that tent of meeting were four layers. The inside layer was a, a covering of linen, beautiful linen. Over that was a goat's hair covering. Over that was a ram's dyed red covering. And over that is another animal skin, which is translated in different ways, badger skin to porpoise, regardless of exactly what it is. The point is that when you looked at that tent of meeting, all you saw was an unattractive, dull animal skin wherein dwelt the awesome, beautiful, glorious presence of God. John, who was there in Luke's story, chapter 9, there with Jesus on that mountain, would later write, And the word became flesh and dwelt, which literally means to spread a tent or tabernacle among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus in his flesh looks so ordinary, it would be so easy to underestimate him. And I would dare to say, as high as you and I think of Jesus, it's still not enough. And there in the sight of the disciples, he, is metamor he metamorphizes. He, he's transfigured, we call it, in their sight, displaying the dazzling glory of God. We read on. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, this is amazing. I mean, if you're a Jew, this is like unbelievable. So to put it in context, if you're a jazz musician, this would be like Nat King Cole and Louis Armstrong showing up. If you're a scientist, this would be like Einstein and Pascal. If you're a soccer uh, fan or star, this would be like Pelle and Maradona because Messi's not dead yet. Two dead greats of the faith talking with Jesus. In the Old Testament, the great watershed moment that defined the people of Israel was the Exodus wherein Moses, the great leader, led a nation of slaves out of slavery from the greatest superpower that existed at that time. Jesus, as he's talking with Moses here, talks about Jesus' exodus. That is the literal word that's translated departure here. In other words, the exodus that Moses accomplished is a foreshadow of a greater exodus that Jesus will accomplish See, we need to understand the death of Jesus and what he accomplished with his death and resurrection was planned from the beginning of time. This was always the plan. In this supernatural event, there's this break-in of humanity that happens through Peter. It says in verse 32, Now Peter and those who were with them were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Uh, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I love how real the Bible is. Peter didn't know what he was doing. A friend of mine once told me a, a story. He was introduced to a professional um, hockey goalie in the bowels of the Rogers Arena. Um, my friend is a businessman professional, sharp businessman. But in that moment, his brain went to mush. He loves hockey. And as he was introduced to this hockey star, his introductory words got all scrambled. How Mike to meet you, he said. How Mike to meet you. That's brain mush. That's what's happening to Peter here. Hey, let's make three tents. One for you, Jesus. One for Moses. One for Elijah. 
And in a way, Peter is showing great respect to Jesus that the rabbi would be placed on equal footing with the two greats of the faith, one who represents the law, another the prophets, but it's not enough. And so this is what happens. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. It's not hard to miss the point that God himself is making here, isn't it? It's not about Moses, Elijah, Jesus, you know, being on the same plane. It's about Jesus. He is alone. We are to listen to him. He is the greater temple. He is the, the greater priest. He is the, the greater leader of a greater exodus. It's all about Jesus. If you're a disciple with Jesus on that day, you've been given a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom as you see it in Jesus. Your, your perspective of Jesus itself is transfigured. And what's important is forever branded in the core of who you are. Maybe you're watching today and you're not a follower of Jesus. You haven't believed in him. I understand that it is a monumental shift to place your faith in him. In many cases, we're asking you to consider that what you have believed all along is wrong. That Jesus is not irrelevant or that he's not just a great teacher or a moralist or a great prophet, but that he is exactly what God declares him to be here. The son of God, co-eternal, co-creator, glorious Listen to him. On that day, on the mountain, as Moses experienced centuries earlier, there is a cloud, a manifestation of the glory of God. And there's fear. And in our lives, in those, those moments of, of monumental shift, we experience fear. COVID, 9-11, a divorce, a death. These things rattle us, but in them there can be a gift, an awakening to examine whether the way that we are living our lives makes sense and is working. This story that we see here in Luke is meant to shake us and to shape us. As the three disciples get a glimpse of the glory that they will bask in for eternity, then all of a sudden, yes, it makes sense to deny self and take up that cross daily. It makes sense to defer gratification, to, to live according to the ways of Jesus, whether it's sexually pure, whether it's forgiving someone, whether it's serving others instead of myself, taking the hard way, even facing hostility with loving truth. It all makes sense in light of the glory of the coming King and the fullness of the kingdom that he is going to bring. You know, this is such a great picture of Christianity, such a, an amazing snapshot of what it's all about, the greatness of Jesus, what he has come to do, what it looks like to follow him rightly, both in the moment and continually, in light of our eternal hope, the coming fullness of the kingdom in the King Jesus. So choose and live. Neutral is not an option. One of the things that has baffled me and I think should never be is that my relationship, my faith in Jesus should be bland, colorless, emotionless, costless. 
And I know it can get that way when I don't tend my heart, when I don't continually gaze on Jesus through his word. But we need to stir it up. We need to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus as we listen to the stories over and over again. As we rehearse the greatness of Jesus in his word and in our minds and in prayer and in worship. And then come from down from that mountain and live. Jesus has set the kingdom in motion. He's put the pieces in place. He's inaugurated. It has started. He came. He died. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He poured out his, his spirit. There are followers. There is a church. But the fullness of the kingdom, it's yet to come. And we live in that in-between. And we live rightly by gazing at Jesus in his scripture, by posturing ourselves in prayer, by denying ourselves and following Jesus in those harder places and harder decisions, only to find that we experience life not only in the now, but for certain in the future. The king is coming again. You know, it's not unreasonable to think that the disciples who were looking forward to the Messiah, couldn't believe that the Messiah actually appeared in their day. In a similar way, we, we never thought that 9-11 would happen, even though there was terrorism out there. We never thought that this virus would land on our soil, even though we heard about it, that it was happening in a foreign country. In the same way, I believe, there will be people who will be alive, real people, a generation who, looking forward to the second coming of Jesus, will actually experience it. It may not be us, but it could be. And so we live. We live in light of a kingdom that is yet to come and the glory of our coming king. We live unreservedly, passionately, prayerfully, as we wait.